0: Greetings, beautiful people. I am joined today with Mike T. Nelson, the man, the myth, the legend, for five questions. So I'm going to introduce Mike a little bit, tell you, have him tell you a little bit about it, and then we're going to get right down into the nitty gritty of this. So I know Mike because him and I were at a cadaver dissection. In case no one knows what that is, that's when people are kind enough to, after they pass on to the next world, donate their bodies to science. And they let people who are very science oriented learn from their bodies. So Mike and I were in the same group for our dissection. Um, I think we actually linked up because we wanted to eat the same lunch. And then we just yeah. started out lunch <laughs> every day. And I was lucky enough to realize that the man who I was eating with is brilliant, and we've kept in touch ever since. He has a PhD in human performance, his exercise physiology, so that means he can answer a wide range of questions for you, so don't hold back. We're gonna do about an hour of conversation back and forth between him and I, and then any questions that you have, we're gonna open it up till then. So Mike, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about yourself before we get into this?
1: Oh, thank you so much, uh, happy to be here, it's a pleasure. Glad we had ended up in the same group there, which was great. Um, yeah, I, I do most of my work uh, online. I do some in-person work, well, well when I can, but not, not recently. Um, I'm a faculty member at the Kerrig Institute. They do a lot of uh, clinical neuroscience, but I primarily do exercise physiology for them. I uh, teach for Rocky Mountain University, Georgia Southern University. Uh, I created a certification, which is a flex diet certification, and... I primarily work with uh, trainers, other coaches, uh, fitness professionals um, for, I guess you could say, continuing education. And then most of my online clients, paradoxically, are like probably 80% or some professional in that area and various athletes.
0: That leads me right into our question, number one of our five questions. What is it you actually do?
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of a wide variety of stuff. So... So one of the things I've always had, like, I don't know if you've read the book Range by David Epstein, but that's like my favorite book of last year. And his whole thing is that to to get to like be an expert, like, or if we look at athletics, right? To be an elite athlete who makes their living doing their sport, goes to the Olympics, whatever gets paid professional athlete, very, very, very few people actually make it to that level. Um, However, can you be pretty darn good in something and then pretty darn good in something else? And what is the intersection between those two, right? Um, so, so David's background is he was actually a researcher, and then he went back to school to be a journalist. So now he does a lot of uh, science-type journalism at a pretty high level. So I've always been kind of fascinated by that concept. So I did my undergrad as a Bachelor of Arts Natural Science. I did my Master's in Mechanical Engineering, Biomechanics, and then spent five years doing a PhD in exercise phys, or I'm sorry, five years in a PhD doing uh, biomedical engineering, dropped out and then went over and finished my PhD in exercise phys. So at a professional level, I've been kind of obsessed with, how can you get to a pretty high level in one kind of discipline? And then can you get to that level in another related discipline? And so what I use internally for kind of my marker as to how high up do I need to go is one does anyone pay me money? Like, does the market value my service? And then two, can I teach that same thing, but only that particular thing? Right. So, starting about five years ago, I got a lot more interested again in doing uh, hands-on work again. So, I took some classes from Doug Heel and Be Activated, uh, RPR Reflexive Performance Reset. Yep. So, I just said, hey, I'm just gonna do hands-on work, and I'm just only gonna do that for a period of time when I'm when I'm at home. And then over time I ended up teaching for reflexive performance uh, reset. So I did something similar in the past with uh, nutrition, did something similar in the past with kind of biomechanics. So now can I look at what are the kind of interfaces between all of those? So I'm more on the, I guess you could say system side, uh, but my research is more in uh, metabolism, exercise, phys, and heart rate variability
0: is is you you said the full name for RPR and i remember this when mm-hmm. we were at that mexican food place yes i asked you kind of like what is your the one thing that you think is the most important thing that's going on right now cuz you have a really good from the top of the mountain you can see a lot of different things <laughs> and your answer was RPR and since then i've had a lot more people talk to me about RPR can you give us just yeah. a little snippet on what that is for people who may not be familiar with it and then just tell us kind of your own opinion of it
1: Yeah, so initially it started off as a system called BeActivated from uh, Doug Heal, who's out of South Africa. So how I got into it, my good buddy Cal Dietz, University of Minnesota, I've known him for uh, 12 years now. So when I did my PhD there, he was literally like right around the corner. So on my lunch break, I'd go down and just sit in his office and annoy him with (laughs) random questions about stuff. Um, One day he's like, hey, that's pretty cool. Yeah, he's like, I got this this guy who's coming in from South Africa to teach this certification. It's like the first time he's ever teaching in North America. I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. What what is it? He goes, crazy shit, man, crazy shit. I'm like, okay. He's like, oh, you got to come to it. It's gonna be great. I'm like, oh, sure. How much is he? He's like, oh, it's like fifteen hundred bucks only. I'm like, oh shit. Okay, well, whatever, right? So I ended up going to the course, and it's a at that time doug was the only person teaching it so they taught as a medical model so we all practiced for two days doing hands-on work on each other and it's a way of doing tissue work on yourself or somebody else uh, to work on specific activations so rpr reflexive performance reset got a license uh, from doug to teach it not just to uh, medical professionals such as yourself uh, but also to personal trainers and strength coaches and it's taught then how to do testing. So you test each other, but then you do the drills on yourself. So one of the super cool things is, you know, you can go to people like yourself in your clinic and other things to have lots of modalities and hands-on work and a bunch of stuff done, which is great, super useful. Um, but to the average person, it's like, well, what do they do once they leave, right? There should be some homework or something associated with that. So with RPR, since you're working on yourself, you can do the drills on yourself to get better activation of specific muscle groups. So for example, if you're working on breathing, you can work on your sternum area and under your ribs, primarily corresponds to diaphragm. Uh, Other spots like kind of behind the head and the side of the head actually correspond to glute max, right, so there's different areas you'll work on different parts of the body that then have a corresponding activation for a particular muscle group.
0: Very cool, nice. All right, so tell us a little bit more about what you actually do in your typical day-to-day then.
1: So day-to-day, like uh, recently, I've just been working on a lot of course stuff. Um, Started an online mentorship program. So I've been doing a lot of, um, I guess, content for that. We've got a Slack group, so a lot of work through there. And since it's a private group, like I'm helping them. So I'm literally correcting, I guess you could say, sort of all their paper and their feedback and giving them specific work on that. Um, I have right now about 15 online clients, somewhere keep between 15 to 20. Um, And I do all their training, nutrition, uh, movement, heart rate variability, program design, all that stuff uh, online. And then I teach for the Kerrig Institute. So I'm working on a new product for them that'll hopefully, was gonna be out in July, but that got moved up to like May now. (laughs) Um, So everybody's kind of at home. And what we're doing is my buddy, Dr. Kenneth Jay, and I are going through kind of all the new research that's come out in the neurology area this past year. Um, How it crosses over to, um, I guess you could say, sort of chiropractors that people are doing kind of functional neurology, used to be the old world, Uh, clinical neurology is probably a better, more accurate term right now, related to nutrition, concussion, TBI, Parkinson's, different diseases. So just kind of doing a nice research review of the stuff that's come out this past year of what we think are kind of the top studies uh what they should know about the studies and then actually how are they applicable to what they're doing so they can kind of sit down and they'll get copies of all the studies and our kind of review of that and also working on another project for related to kind of a primer course for uh the flex diet and then related to a course on Probably the endocannabinoid system and then looking at the effects of THC CBD for uh, models of concussion and TBI.
0: Can you give us let's say and you know nothing too crazy but yeah. you talked about clinical or functional neurology and then you talked about we'll say the the cannabinoid system pretend like you were doing like a current concepts or like a lit review and you just want us to have three take-home points for each of those. Of what's happening in the research can you just hit us with three and three for those two topics
1: yeah so so functional neurology which is kind of a the word that's been used although if you look it up you won't find anything you'll actually find a bunch of really weird shit. <laughs> so clinical yeah. neurology clinical neuroscience is probably a more accurate word and how i explain it to people so i do some exercise programming through uh, dr jamie schmo's office here in minnesota So we have people that come in for a week and do a lot of intensive work, uh, especially post-TBI. So traumatic brain injury, they take a big walk to the head. And normal chiropractic is a lot of manual work and adjustments, which, you know, definitely have their place, definitely can be useful. But a lot of it is not looking through the lens of neurology, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the courses I took, it's called a pain reset course through them. Is saying okay if you're a chiropractor and you have a license for physical therapists and you can do adjustments on people great but what how do we take the impact of what the nervous system may want to do at the same time how do we consider that and not just this biomechanics model right so clinical neurology is then looking at even one step further so if i use myself as an example um so i have some eye issues my eyes don't see together in 3d So when I went in for my assessment, so I went to Dr. Jeremy Schmoel's office and they'll do different movements and look at different things related to eye movement. Um, So one of the things they'll look at is how well can your eyes track? What is the position of your eyes? Uh, Something called saccades or saccades. Imagine reading, right? So reading, you don't look at every single word all the way across the page. You skip from a set of words to next set of words to next set of words. So that really fast, that reflexive eye movement is what's called the saccadic eye motion. So there's different eye movements that they can then look at, and then further up be like, ah, you're missing this eye movement here. Hmm, what part of the brain do we think controls that specific eye movement? Ah, it's this part of the brain over here. Ah, so maybe that part of the brain is not working as well as it should. Hmm, what else does that part of the brain do? Can we give you another task to do to kind of strengthen that area of the brain. So one of the drills I was doing for a while was to put my thumb here, stare at my thumb, leave this here, and then turn around in a circle. So what I'm doing is I'm holding my gaze stable on something that's near, but I'm getting proprioceptive and vestibular input from turning around and peripheral input from the room turning. And that was to activate a specific part of my brain that wasn't working as well. So they can then look at these different functions and markers, eye movement, vestibular inputs to try to figure out what part of the brain is not working as well as it should. And then go, ah, what else does that part of the brain do? So let's try to activate it um, over here. And then we can then remeasure because we're talking about neurology, right? We're talking about fast changes. We can then remeasure that eye movement again and see, aha, did we get close or not? Ooh, we do see a, an improvement in this type of eye movement. Great. So now we have a drill for you to do as part of your homework to build in those repetitions via a positive change in, in neuroplasticity.
0: Well put. So a lot of testing, retesting with that, but real quick because we're not looking for mechanical changes, if you will.
1: Yeah. So the big sort of blinding flash of the obvious I had a couple of years ago is that if you can make a change to the body in a matter of seconds, it it's- has to be from neurology course there's yeah. there, there's no other there's no other explanation right It does not mean that the biomechanics yeah. model is not true it's a neuro biomechanics model right i mean
0: even the same thing about getting stronger right away yes um, if you make strength gains in the first we'll say four weeks easy it's it's very easy to say that is neurological. There's no hypertrophy that's occurring at that moment in time. If I can make someone white knuckle fist, squeeze their glutes as hard as they can, and I can add some strength or power, that's obviously not mechanical. I feel like those aha moments that I've had make me realize, wow, this, for me, it's very much making, if I can make the nervous system feel this much safer I can get this much more power or strength out of it. It's a very much a one-to-one. And I know that the person has the exact same glute that they had before, but if I can get those ribs to knit down or I can get those obliques to fire, I can get more of the actual strength or power out of that muscle.
1: Yep. The only thing I would add to that, I agree 110%, is the only other question to add is at what cost, right? So, which, I mean, there's always a, a risk, you know, risk reward to everything, right? So you're looking for things that get the highest benefit at at whatever the lower lowest cost is. Yep, but I would agree.
0: What about the endocannabinoid system? Give us your quick little like, yeah. hey, in the next year, you're gonna see this stuff coming out. Give us that hot new stuff.
1: Yeah, so I started looking at about three and a half years ago because I do a lot of kiteboarding. And I was like, man, what happens if I'm like, you know, 20 feet up in the air and I get dropped on my head? You know, that's not going to be good. Obviously, I wear a helmet, do neck exercises, stuff like that. But are there things I could take maybe prophylactically that may be beneficial. So I started looking at, you know, things like creatine, uh, fish oil, maybe Data yeah, They just of mixed on that. Like I've seen these things called endocannabinoids and CBD and THC. And I'm like, huh. I always thought that was just a bunch of bunk. Like, I didn't think there was anything to it. You know, I are like, ah, i going to be a stoner stuck to my couch cushion. This sounds like a horrible idea. And I kept seeing more research saying, oh, endocannabinoids. Um, so if we back up and we go, okay, uh, what system in the body regulates that? Something called the endocannabinoid system. So the main thing that uh, is a good example for people who are active is the runner's high is actually from the endocannabinoid system. What? It's actually... Yeah, which is crazy, because um, a lot of people thought that it was something else. And what's even more amazing to me is you asked like I took a lot of physiology stuff. And no one ever mentioned the endocannabinoid system. Like you asked most MDs, like, "Hey, what'd you learn about the endocannabinoid system?" Like nothing.
0: So are they? Is does the endo? So we always learn and endo- endorphins and enkephalins were responsible for that. Um, that runner's high, if you will, is it the endocannabinoid system being involved in the release of those or, or am I no, totally my impression?
1: But, yeah. So it's a, a compound called anandamide, which is Sanskrit, I think for like bliss molecule. Um, but it's a way of your body's uh, blunting pain. And so if you normally look at when the runner's high normally occurs, it's something that happens later in the exercise is not something that happens right away. And the theory is that that's your body's way of turning on the endocannabinoid system to kind of blunt some of the painful effects from exercise. Wow. Yeah. So the endocannabinoid system is used in uh, pain modification, regulation of sleep, uh, mood, a whole bunch of stuff. And then now things like CBD, cannabidiol are real popular. And CBD and THC do somewhat interact with the endocannabinoid system. There's two main receptors in the endocannabinoid system. um, And both those compounds can interact with that system, not as directly as what we think, um, but there are different ways of modifying it. And right now there's other uh, cannabinoids, there's like well over, I think 113 that have been identified so far. Um, We only have two endogenous ones that the body will actually produce. Um, but what's interesting about that is they're really kind of short-acting and they're only really produced on-demand So they're not like uh, epinephrine. That's you know norepinephrine. That's Released from the adrenal glands. and kind of flows around the bloodstream and, and hits different targets It's almost more like this hybrid between the kind of direct portion of the nervous system
0: That is really that's really interesting. I've never heard it explained, it, and I appreciate you taking the time Yeah So let's go on to our question two, how do you get into metabolic flexibility and what is it?
1: Yeah, so metabolic flexibility is from your metabolism, right? So in the fitness world, right? Everyone's arguing about, ah, bro, like what's the best fuel? It's like, oh no, it's only fat. You gotta do ketogenic, high fat diet or no, if you do that, you need carbohydrates to perform and to lift weights and do high intensity work and, To me, if you're talking about a healthy individual, not talking about pathologies or disease or anything like that, but a healthy individual, the answer is like both, (laughs) you know, because your body will use both. And to me, that's the best thing to do. So metabolic flexibility is how well do you use fats, maybe kind of one end, how well do you use carbohydrates on the other end? And then how well do you actually switch back and forth between the two different fuel systems? So hanging out, Having this conversation, you know, fat's probably going to be a much better fuel what's called aerobic metabolism. Um, If we go to put you on a rower and have you do a 500 meter or a 2K, you probably want to be able to use carbohydrates. That's going to be definitely beneficial for exercise performance um, and even tolerance, like how hard that exercise uh, feels. But the reality is we want to use both and we want the ability to switch back and forth. If we lose that or become what's called metabolically inflexible, that's actually a marker for different uh, disease states. So someone who is a type two diabetic, by definition is very metabolically inflexible. They have a hard time using carbohydrates. As the disease progresses for various reasons, they actually start losing the ability to use fat and they get scrunched from kind of both ends of the spectrum and they can't switch back and forth very effectively.
0: So that, okay. So in general, that is that inflexibility, metabolically speaking, is that due to, when I think about type two diabetes, I think of insulin resistance. And I also yeah. think about leptin in there as well, not sure. necessarily like mechanistically, but that's something that's going on in, in the body. Um, is is that metabolic inflexibility due, due linked to insulin resistance or is it something else
1: yes and no i would say the simple story that is true but not complete um, is related to insulin right so we know as insulin goes up it actually pushes your body to use more carbohydrates if you want to push your body to use more fat you would have a lower level of insulin right? so Mm. fasting will do that so if you fast not consume anything insulin levels are going to go down it's going to push your body to use more fats as a fuel. Uh, if you have a very high carbohydrate meal, you have two Pop-Tarts for breakfast, right? Insulin goes up. Your body is going to push to actually burn more of those carbohydrates, or carbohydrate oxidation. When you have someone who is type 2 diabetic, it does start off with insulin resistance, mainly at the sort of the liver and then also the muscle, right? So just think of the muscle as this really big sink of where you can just dispose of a bunch of fuels especially carbohydrates stored as glycogen so as you start losing that ability your body doesn't want a bunch of blood glucose hanging out in the bloodstream because that's going to be bad for your health and just buggers up a whole bunch of other things so it really wants to try to stuff more glucose into the muscle but because of cellular changes in the muscle the muscle is like hey man don't put any more glucose in here it's like a bad house party like, we've already got, you know, this shit's getting destroyed in here. I don't want any more glucose coming in. Mm -hmm. so I'm going to change my insulin sensitivity, right? And so then you start seeing blood glucose levels start going up. Your body is like, hey, we got to get this blood glucose out of the bloodstream or put it in fat or get it the hell out of here. So -hmm. we're going to just jack up more and more insulin, right? And we're going to try to jam more glucose away if we can. So as insulin levels start going up, right? So if you look at a progression of type two diabetics, you'll see blood glucose kind of goes up. Sometimes it may come back down to a normal range, but their background level of insulin will be like sky high, right? So Correct. I did a study and fortunately never got published, but we're looking at blood glucose data on borderline type two diabetics. We're not technically classified as a type two diabetic. And then we had them do exercise, had them do a bunch of stuff. And then later, because the ELISA test takes longer to get insulin data, I got insulin data on him. And some of the people you would look and you're like, holy shit, man, like your blood glucose is like 180. Like you got some issues. Other people were like bad, but not horrible. Like 115, 120. So definitely high, but not as bad as the poor bastard at 180. But then we got the insulin levels. And some of those people who were around 120, their insulin was sky high. Right, So they're already on their way to definitely being more of a type 2 diabetic. Remember what we said about insulin. If insulin levels are super high, it's preventing you now from switching fuels over to fat. Right, So a high level of insulin is preventing you from switching to use fat as a fuel. So it's trying to push you back to carbohydrates again. Your brain's like, get all this blood glucose out of the, the system. It's screwing everything up. And so you're getting scrunched from... Both ends of the spectrum, and they become very metabolically inflexible at that point.
0: And now you're talking about fasting a little bit. I, I, I'm sure that you have some, and I've read a lot of your stuff, so I'm, I'm yeah. like kind of playing dumb, but I, I'd like you to explain it. But in general, are you more of the, a few times a year do a longer duration type of fast? Are you uh, make sure that? It's a twelve a twelve hour not eating window. Is it an eight hour eighteen hour every day? Where do you kind of guide your guidelines for people to start to work away from that kind of insulin resistance, if you will, and that inertia that unfortunately that has back into something where they can start to burn carbs and fats as well as anyone else.
1: Yeah, I would say uh, for what goal in particular or what context.
0: I would say that. If you have someone who wants to start to lose weight, and I feel like they're kind of my impression is that the longer that someone's had that weight on their body, the harder it is for them to start to take it away. It's almost like that insulin resistance ends up getting a bit of inertia onto itself. You want to start to kind of crack at that a little bit what are the most user friendly ways to play around with your frequency of eating and feel free to dive into what you're eating as well, but frequency of eating as far as like fasting in order to start that boat to start to turn around.
1: Yeah. So I would say like the biggest thing with that is, you know, making sure they get healthy first or in the process. Uh, right. So I have a new client. So his, um, blood pressure is a little high. He's on a fair amount of meds is, Blood glucose I just looked at was anywhere from 120 to 125, right? He probably needs, you know, ideally he's a big dude, but probably needs to lose eh, 40-ish pounds somewhere in there. Um, so assuming that they're not ridiculously high stress. So one of the questions I'll ask them is if you get really stressed, do you skip meals or do you just tend to eat more? If they're kind of, I skip meals. I may not really start with fasting or if they're super stressed. Uh, but assuming otherwise they're, they're okay, like metabolically, they're kind of headed down the wrong path, but they're not really horrible. Uh, my recommendation is to do a fast once a week, uh, work up to about 19 to 24 hours. So you'll okay. take Monday. So say Monday's your fasting day, just push out breakfast by a couple hours and then go again the following Monday. All right. Maybe skip mm-hmm. breakfast or move breakfast to lunch. Cool. You probably did 14 hours pretty easily go again the next week so take like a six to eight week run-in period only doing it once per week and that gives them time to kind of adapt to that and i found that that makes a huge difference and then once they're there well, once a week a 19 to 24 hour fast because uh, what i'm trying to do is just walk out a whole day's worth of calories right because obviously they need to be in a caloric deficit and then also we know that the longer the fast goes the more we're going to get that drop in insulin um so a healthy ish person that insulin will come down and, and flatline or kind of reach what's called an asymptotic point point, eh, 15 to 18 hours um, if they're overweight there's one study that compared lean to overweight individuals yeah they were taking longer they were taking 24 36 you know sometimes 40 hours to hit that bottom part where it completely flattened out but even 24 hours was enough to dramatically kind of drop that So in the background, I'm thinking that's kind of the mechanism too.
0: Okay. So that's the people that were more overweight. It took them longer for them to have the same hormonal changes that someone who is not overweight would have. Again, interesting to talk about like calorie in, calorie out, hormone, but you seem to do a good job of putting it all together for us. And I really appreciate that. That's awesome. So. Third question, I would say, why is sleep not something a trainer or coach should start with?
1: Yeah, so it was probably like one of my newer pet peeves, I guess. Um, and it's not because sleep doesn't have a large physiologic role or that you shouldn't do it. Um, so, for example, obviously, I'm biased. I put together the Flex Diet Certification, and it's eight different interventions for trainers and coaches and fitness enthusiasts looking more nutrition and recovery. And so in my head, I'm like going, okay, like how how do I rate these, right? Because everybody wants to know like, you know, for the average person, like where do I start, right? So I had all the eight interventions, you know, protein and meat and sleep and micronutrition, all this good stuff, very similar stuff you talk about. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, okay, in my head, like, ha, I got it. I will just rate these on what the physiologic impact is. Cool, okay. So I did that and then I looked at it and I'm like, huh. Now, is this really practical in the real world for people to start, right? So we could say a physiologic impact of sleep is on a one to 10 scale, very high, probably like a nine. We can show tons of data showing that, you know, within one night, you can be slightly insulin resistant the next day if we drop your sleep dramatically. Four to five days, we can take healthy individuals, University of Chicago, take them from eight hours to four hours a night and basically make them borderline type two diabetics in a week. Right. So if we do crazy stuff to people's sleep, your body just starts going crazy. Right. So, but the downside is in practice, when you're coaching people, you're like, okay, Bob, Bob, I want you to work on your sleep. Uh, okay. And you give them all the reasons why Bob doesn't go to bed any earlier. So you do all this great thing. You send him, you know, all these books and stuff to read, which he never reads. And, at the end of the day, you're, you're left with, okay, Bob, come in and let's, let's talk about your schedule, right? Cause it's a schedule thing. And so sure. you can go through his whole day. He's got, you know, an hour commute on the train to get to work, works in a busy office, comes back home, does make it to the gym for an hour, which is great. Hangs out with the kids, helps them with their homework for a while. And then he chills out with his wife and watches Netflix for two hours at bed. Next thing he knows it's midnight and he's got to get up at 6am again. All right. So now you're telling Bob basically, oh yeah, those two hours at night, you kind of chill out with your wife, like screw that and just go to bed early. He's like, no, F you, get out of here. Why did I pay you a bunch of money? This is a stupid idea, right? Right. Because what you're saying to him is, I want you to make a value judgment on your life. And I want you to prioritize this thing that you haven't done. So you don't really know how much better you could feel because you haven't felt it yet. You're chronically used to being sleep deprived. So you don't know what good even feels like. Um, uh, for this hypothetical thing in the future that, yeah, may not be worth it, right? So it's a very hard discussion to have. So I came up with something I just called coaching leverage, which is the uh, physiologic impact of something times the psychologic ability for the client to change.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: sleep on a one to ten skill has, you know physiology, very high, probably a nine. Um, psychologic ability for most people to change is atrocious. It's like a friggin one. Right. So your overall score is like a nine, which in my ranking of one day interventions put it actually dead last um, compared to like protein. Right. So if a client says, hey, you know, I want to lose more fat. You're like, great protein. Lots of good, you know, backing, lots of good things with protein. Oh, and by the way, Bob, if you want to lose more weight, I actually want you to eat more of this thing. They look at you like, well, wait a minute. I thought I was supposed to eat less calories and fasting is all trendy. Like, no, no, I actually want you to eat more protein. Like, okay, so you actually want me to eat more of something specific and I'm trying to lose weight. Yes. Okay, that's a a pretty easy sell, right? It's gonna take a little work, that kind of stuff. Um, But it's a pretty easy sell to someone versus screw Netflix, just go to bed. Uh, Trust me, you'll be leaner in four weeks. Screw you, I don't wanna do that, right? So I think always when we take into crack, uh, inner actions or interventions or things you want clients to do. We also have to, you know, kind of make it more practical too. Um, right. You could argue now I wrote an article I called the great sleep experiment, you know, now because we're kind of in lockdown and hanging out at home and that kind of stuff. You could make the argument that that hour commute you had each way. I told people like, you don't have that now. So just try to go to bed earlier. Like literally keep backing up the time that you go to bed until you wake up before your alarm clock goes off. And then just do that for at least two to three weeks because yes, you can be that much sleep deprived or you may have a sleep debt that may take you two to four weeks sometimes to get out of. And then once they feel that much better, they're like, holy shit, I didn't know I could feel this good. (laughs) Then it's a lot easier sell for them to keep up that habit because, ah, I feel it, right? Because feeling is kind of believing for them.
0: Yeah, so you can get that right now. Everything's shifted. Yes. It's actually for, for, for buy-in because as in upheaval things are, there are certain advantages, pros and cons to everything. There's certain yeah. pros to, like you said, not having that. Do you um, – we had kind of the same conversation with our with our patients. It's, it's very frequent. We talk about sleep and, and almost like just telling them – to go to sleep more a little bit earlier didn't feel like me being a coach. That felt like me being a finger wagger, principal. Um, We try and almost do a little bit more actionable things um, instead of just saying like, oh, we need to work on your sleep. It's like, hey, I want you to go outside and get some sun in your eyes for 20 minutes sometime today. And then start them with that, and then be like, okay, you know how you get that? Let's let's try and get it a little bit earlier, cool. Okay, I don't even necessarily need you to shut it down earlier right now, but I want you to put on these ugly blue blocking glasses, which are yep. nine, which I'm gonna give you. Yeah, yeah. Just like start to go. Okay, so cool. Now we got that going on a little bit. Like, hey, this is linked to sleep. It helps you sleep a lot better. Temperature is really sensitive. Like, would you be open to getting a little pad under your mattress just to see if it helps you out? Cool. Okay. Another like coachable moment here. Take a shower before. Some people think that the hot, some people think cold like that. And then for us, like visualization meditations is something that, again, it's like buy in. Like everyone knows that they should be doing some sort of mindfulness practice, meditation practice. Mm -hmm. But. Maybe they're not doing it. so. So maybe that one comes a little bit later. We had the same um, uphill battles um, with with different things. It's funny. It's like people used to fight me on ergonomics. They're so like stand up desk. People are going to make fun of me, but now they don't uh-huh. fight me at all. They're asking me to write them on our letterhead justification for it. It's funny yeah, yeah. how things shift and how things come in in and out of vogue. But I like what you're saying. I, I agree with you that it is an uphill battle. The only perhaps. The way that we came around it, and we don't, it's not the first thing we talk to about our patients by any means. But the way that we started that conversation wasn't trying to tell them to go to bed even any earlier, which has its nice justification in the literature, just oh, getting yeah, into totally. bed earlier. But that's so hard. Like you said, you're 100% right on that. So it's almost these like crafty little coachy, cuey things to try and get them to get better quality sleep. And perhaps more of it without them feeling they need to give up that really important hour of two nights of Netflix, two hours of Netflix with your wife. So I hear what you're saying on that
1: 100%. Yeah. And then the FlexDiode, like the first action item I have is I want you to take an AM walk with no sunglasses or even UV contacts in, right? Because I, no. like you said, I want those photons in the bottom part of your eye to signal your brain to start re regulating your circadian rhythm. Right. If you do that, then you, oh, paradoxically start getting tired earlier. And chances are you may go to bed on your own volition more often. So, yes, I agree 100 percent.
0: Couldn't agree more. That's awesome. Nice. Fourth question. And this is a question. This is funny because I was like, oh, I want to be the good host here. So I was like, let me do some research on what he's going to say for this question. But I said, no, I want to hear first, said- like everyone else. What is physiologic? flexibility.
1: Yeah, so, so I spent a lot of time working on metabolic flexibility. How I got into that to answer the second part of that question was it was assigned to me by my advisor 13 years ago. <laughs> so my first day in the, in the lab, I had dropped out of the PhD program in biomed. I didn't wanna do any more math. I had a minor in math and I was like, oh God, no more math it was very hard for me. I could do it, but it was just oh, it was really, really hard. I go to the physiology exercise phys department, which I'd spent literally all my free time reading. I'd go to exercise phys conferences for my vacation and just harass trainers to no end about why they're not reading research. And I was shocked. Like the first one I went to, they're like, you guys don't read research. They're like, no, who the hell are you?
0: <laughs> you're kind of in the minority there a little bit. But yeah. That's why we—that's why you're here right now. Yeah.
1: Um, so I started doing that. It was math we were trying to use some variability analysis to classify metabolic flexibility heart rate variability um so from there okay yeah I kind of understand that okay that's metabolism so what is like on a systems level what is the next thing up that we could target right so say it's a pretty good athlete or even just someone who's got their health and fitness in order their sleep's pretty good Nutrition's is good, their stress is pretty good, they're training, they get their aerobic training in, they're doing their lifting, their movements all good. Like what is the next level beyond that? And what is the, the system? So I like looking at what are the principles the body operates on. And I think the main principle is that it's very survival based, right? Your body will do whatever possible to acutely survive or it'll try everything possible that it can. Okay, if I believe that is true, then what are systems in the body that have to be in place that your body just does not allow much movement? What is called the homeostatic regulators, right? So I'll ask you, like, what do you think is like a big homeostatic regulator that uh, condition your body has to operate within a fine tolerance?
0: Or it'll cheat and steal from something else, is that the?
1: Or it'll just go to hell, right?
0: It's funny because, right, I, I'm going to say water. Is that is yep.
1: that a reasonable? So, oh. yep. means systemic filling pressure, right? So fluid balance, right? So blood volume, water, uh, fluids, I would say, are definitely up there, right? If you yeah. just suck fluid out of someone, that, yep, they're going to go down. Uh, breathing, yes. Uh, yeah. Breathing, I'd say, is an intervention. Um, what happens if you don't breathe? Worst case scenario. Die. You would die, right? Um what happens if you hyperventilate?
0: You put yourself into a sympathetic state. Yes, correct. Necessarily.
1: Yeah. So and do you increase CO2 or decrease CO2?
0: You're blowing off more. I am oh man. You are blowing off more oxygen.
1: Nope, you were right the first time. You're blowing off more CO2.
0: You Okay, are you blowing off more oxygen as well or exclusively CO2? Nope.
1: Mostly CO2. Okay. Yeah, oxygen doesn't change too much. Um, yeah, so you're correct. Gotcha. You exhale more CO2, right? So temporarily, if you do like a Wim Hof type thing, you become mm-hmm. more alkaline. But right. pH is going to be regulated. If you do a long breath hold, right? CO2 levels build up. Right, CO2 levels basically transfer to carbonic acid, and your pH oh. will start to drop. But pH, I would argue, is another homeostatic regulator. Right, your body has to maintain pH very, very tight. Uh, blood glucose would be another one. Right, you can't really tolerate big swings in blood glucose. Um, the last one would be temperature. Right, humans are homeotherms. Right, we have to maintain around 98.6. So. To me, those are kind of the main homeostatic regulators and your body will do everything possible to make sure that those operate within a very tight range. However, what's fascinating about humans as we know is you can be exposed to some pretty cold ass temperatures and still be okay. You can go into a sauna and be exposed to pretty high temperatures for a period of time and still be okay. So what is that buffering capacity that you have with each system right so if I want to alter pH uh, we could do things related to breathing right I could put you on a rower and tell you to roll balls out for 60 seconds and then see how much you like lactate and hydrogen ions right yeah. uh, we could give you three pop tarts for breakfast how well can you buffer glucose without movement mm. right so to me I just use the term physiologic flexibility uh, it's kind of sort of related to hormesis now, like hormesis is kind of a fancy term. Uh, hormesis originally came from the study of toxicology, which says that if we give you a little bit of something that may slightly damage you, but you can then be better from it over time. Um, like uh, Talib stuff looking at anti-fragile, All right? So people are listening. If I have a ceramic container and I drop it, probably going to break, right? It's kind of fragile. If I take a Tupperware container and drop it, yeah, it's going to stay. It's pretty, pretty resilient. Um, But it doesn't get any better when I apply stress to it. So physiology in general is what they call anti-fragile. Meaning if I go to the gym and start doing more bicep curls, my biceps will actually start getting a little bit bigger and stronger. They'll actually start getting better from that applied amount of stress. Yeah. yeah, that
0: that, that hormetic effect—it's interesting because we think about it in in the strength world as like exactly what you're talking about, like that adaptation, if yes. you will. It's been interesting because recently, and the the hormetic effect of, of certain foods, particularly fruits sure. and vegetables, that that may or may not. But it, it's it's interesting how some of the same people that I know that love the hormetic effect when it comes to muscle physiology, are like. Oh, well, this is a good excuse for me to never eat vegetables. I'm like, but you just said that you love that principle. I think it's interesting.
1: What's crazy on the vegetable thing is there's, some, it's a little bit of a theory out there, but there's some data to prove, I would say prove, but at least show that. So think about um, what do we do with grapes when we make wine, right? What is like a better grape? We're going to make wine out of them. But does that grape want to exist in the absolute pristine conditions? Or does it want to be kind of almost like borderline starved for water and almost like a little bit of a drought? Right. Mm -hmm. The latter is probably better, right? Why? Because polyphenols are upregulated. So we can, there's some theories that we can infer stress in the environment by nutritional hormetic effects right? The changes in those polyphenol compounds, they go up when plants are exposed to more stress. So when we consume them, it may give us some data about what's going on in the environment around us. Paradoxically, those same chemicals tend to be more preferential for human health too. When
0: when you're talking about stress, I've heard you explain this as well as anyone, but can you talk about the different types of stresses you yeah. stress and things like that would you would you mind just taking a moment and telling our
1: yeah yeah so i like the classification of you stress versus distress so you stress e-u-s-t-r-e-s-s right so stress that your body can generally resolve within a shorter period of time right so when i set up training programs for most of my athletes and clients my first thought is okay how much you stress can i get right i want to program pretty high frequency moderate intensity and I'm going to accumulate volume, right? Because I want to give them enough time that they're better the next time they enter the gym, right? So I'm going to program that in a, in a way, um, a distress would be a stress that takes your body quite a while to adapt to. So again, I don't think it's that you ever not adapt. I think adaptation is something that can't really be stopped. I think we would change the rate of it. Definitely. Uh, There's a a new study that came out that looked at high-intensity interval training on people who were chronically sleep-deprived. What they found was it still helped them hold on to more muscle mass, right? Now, they didn't have the greatest performance during high-intensity interval training, but compared to the group that didn't do it, they were still beneficial. Now, again, at some point, if that dose is super high, that's going to become a massive distress to them, and it's going to take a long time for them to adapt, and they may see a downward trend from that. Uh, competitive athletes, right? If you're going to go to the CrossFit Games and get the crap beat out of you for three to four days in a row, that's a distress event. If you're a powerlifter, Olympic weightlifter doing a meet, probably a distress event. Um, you're going to have a massive amount of stress over a short period of of time. Um, so I like differentiating those two because most people I see who get into fitness go like way too much distress and then can't figure out like why they don't recover. Like, why are they not getting even stronger? Why did they get injured all of a sudden? It's like they just put the pedal to the metal and they're not recovering. By the next time that they go into the gym, they normally burn themselves out. They're really not that productive, you know, a couple of weeks later. Right. You look at everything from like just attrition rates in the gym to injury rates, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think you can just think about, okay, how much stress can I handle? And what can I do then to recover? And then the next level up is what uh, systems is that taxing? And can I train them to actually increase my recovery, right? So the main one people forget about is what is your aerobic fitness? How well can you take oxygen and turn it into fuel, right? So if you're doing a heavy set of squats, right? When you're lifting, right, primarily carbohydrates, very high level stress, what's called anaerobic metabolism, you don't really need oxygen. But as soon as you rock the weight, that is what's called aerobic metabolism at that point. Your body is taking in oxygen and trying to get you back to baseline as soon as possible so you can go ahead and do it again. That same concept can be applied from one day to one week to one month. So I'm a big fan of knowing what your aerobic capacity is, even if you're mainly a lifter, um, because that's gonna determine how well you can recover from exercise and just stress in general. I've just noticed people with a better aerobic base are just just handle a lot more stress better in their life than people who don't have that. Um, and it's also very trainable, right? There's only so much I can do. I'm not gonna do anything to make my wrist bigger, right? Maybe a millimeter here and there over the course of a couple decades. However, I can directly control my aerobic base to a very high level. Um, so it's something that people then can control too.
0: So to, to piggyback, and this is not my fifth question, we will get there in yeah, a minute. No worries. But just tell, take us through, the. if you don't mind, I think that it's, for a lot of people, how we end up making energy, ATP, mm-hmm. in order for us to perform athletically or even not athletically. Um, creatine phosphate system, fast glycolysis, low glycolysis, um, and oxidation. Would you mind just taking us through the way that you view those energy systems and then would you mind just giving us if there were people at home what a test might look like for each one of those energy systems without putting you on the spot
1: yeah no that's easy um the best way to think about it is if you go back to metabolic flexibility we have our two main fuels right so we have carbohydrates on this end right so the main system for that is what's called as you mentioned glycolysis right and there's two forms is a fast and a slow or what's called anaerobic metabolism Anaerobic means we don't necessarily need oxygen present at that point in time to create ATP. ATP is the cellular currency of the body. The main fuel for glycogen, or I should say glycolysis is actually glycogen. Carbohydrates that are stored in the muscle or stored in the liver. So if we run glycolysis really, really hard, we spin off something called uh, lactic acid, which is actually lactate plus hydrogen ions. Right, the so lactic acid will basically immediately disassociate into those two and if you remember back to scratching your head from you know high school chemistry hydrogen ions are literally the definition of an acid ph right concentration of hydrogen ions so when you've done like a lot of leg extensions or something like that and you feel your quads burning that literally is more hydrogen ions that are present and they'll screw up the actin and myosin cross bridges, and at some point you just won't be able to do the exercise anymore. So the lactate that gets spun off actually gets reused by other muscles. Uh, the cardiac system loves lactate. Your brain loves lactate. So that uh, high energy component actually gets reused. So you've got carbohydrates, then you've got a byproduct, kind of a negative one, is hydrogen ions, and then you also the the wingman of carbohydrates is lactate. On the other side, you've got Mm -hmm. fat metabolism. So fat metabolism is generally what's called aerobic, meaning you're using oxygen to produce ATP. Now, again, you can, you know, split hairs later and there's aerobic and there's an anaerobic component of it. And we won't worry too much about that. So your body generally will want to use aerobically will want to use fat. You know, like I said, Mm -hmm. you can aerobically kind of use carbohydrates, but we'll not worry about that for right now. Um, So aerobically, generally, fat's going to be your main fuel. And if you run a ton of fat through that system, you actually spin off something called ketones, right? So a ketogenic diet is something that's very low in carbohydrates, right? Because we need a very low level of insulin. We need a massive amount of fat to be run through the system. And when we do that, we'll start spitting out these ketones that are done by the liver. So again, these ketones, just like lactate, are then have different signaling qualities and actually get burned as a fuel. Now you don't necessarily have to produce ketones to use a lot of fat as a fuel, right? So one of the myths is, oh bro, I gotta be like ketogenic diet in order to use fat. Not necessarily, right? You can still use a lot of fat and not necessarily be in what's called classical ketosis. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's primarily aerobic system with fat. The wingman of fat is gonna be ketones, Anaerobic system, not necessarily using oxygen per se. It's mainly carbohydrates. And then the byproduct is gonna be lactate. So if we go back to metabolic flexibility. You actually wanna be able to use both, right? So if I wanna increase my aerobic base, how much energy can I get from oxygen primarily using fat as a fuel source? Ideally, in my opinion, you would do it kind of fasted. We want a mm-hmm. low level of insulin. And we're gonna do lower to moderate intensity. So if people don't have a heart rate monitor, just breathe through your nose. And that'll limit that amount of intensity. Uh, Pick some type of old school cardiovascular exercise. Bike, uh, rower is great, Uh, versaclimber, cross country skiing, running, things like that. Can you lift weights faster? Yeah, that's its own little animal for a different adaptation. And then maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday, right? So you're doing some aerobic-based stuff in the morning, maybe Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, or each morning for a little bit. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, do some type of weightlifting. Your goal there is to use carbohydrates to get stronger. But in your rest period, in my opinion, should be mostly com- what's called complete rest. Meaning if I'm hitting five by five, old school, Bill Starr on the squat, And I did set one, I got five reps. If I start set two and all of a sudden I only get two reps, the first thing I'm gonna look at is I bet you did not rest long enough because you didn't change the load, didn't change anything else. So rest long enough to hit you know, about four to five reps again. And then can you repeat that and do that again, right? Because we want that stimulus to be more strength driven. We don't necessarily want it to be limited by that aerobic recovery Period. So, for most clients, I will separate those two systems out, and then I'll try <laughs> to elevate both of them, and then I'll play around with switching back and forth.
0: Well put. I'm going to ask you the fifth question here, and then we, you and I may have a little Q and A, and then we'll open it up yeah. to everyone else. So, why should everyone learn to kiteboard?
1: Because it's just fun. <laughs> there you go. You have it, yeah. folks.
0: This is our interview.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so kiteboarding is like one of my favorite things to do. I've got a, I just got a surfboard behind me right now. So I'm learning to, to use a surfboard uh, off of a kite, but actually it's supposed to be in South Padre kiteboarding right now, but obviously I'm hanging out at home and my surfboard's collecting dust. Um, but so you have like this big upside down parachute looking thing. It's attached to four, you know, kind of razor sharp lines that are hundred feet long. They come to a little harness and you've got a control bar that allows you to move the kite through the air. You can use a kind of surfboard looking thing like that, kind of a modified wakeboard, and it'll pull you uh, across the water. And it's super fun cause there's something, I think just really interesting about using only the wind, right? So there's no motor, there's no, nothing else like that. I'm not against those things at all, but there's just something about being in the elements like only really being pulled by the wind. And if you choose to do it, or if you do it correctly, You can then take the kite, which is kind of up here out in front, and pull it straight up over your head really fast. And then it'll literally like pull you up off of the water. So you can then fly through the air for a period of a few seconds. And if you do it right, you can land pretty damn soft. Uh, You kind of screw that part up, you can just get dropped out of the sky like a sack of potatoes. But (laughs) it's a great feeling when you actually land it, though. You're like, ah, yes, that was so cool. Yeah, super
0: fun. Put the same. So I'm going to ask you to ask me the question. Just put surfing in there. Throw it back my way.
1: Yeah. So why should people learn surfing?
0: Oh, I'm glad you asked me that, Mike. That's great. So for me, I look at our eight foundations of health. So we talk about very similar things. For us, it's hydration, diet, sleep, stress, exercise, ergonomics, which really like patterns, static and uh, dynamic, breathing and connection. Like that's our eight. And I don't think that I've had one thing that hits as many things as surfing. So the hydrating thing, okay, we can kind of take that. And I don't think I'm going to get that. Your diet, all right, that's not so bad. But, But maybe whenever I talk about diet, and I'm going just shooting from the hip right now, but like diet, we don't really talk about Diet without talking about digestion digestion is actually what we lead We take a bit of a traditional Chinese medicine approach or a more functional medicine approach to it Meaning that I'm not going to talk to you about amount of fats carbs and proteins until we think that your microbiome is where it should be so for me, I think getting out there in nature And particularly being in water, I haven't seen this proven in the research, but I can't imagine being in all that software would have a negative effect on your microbiota. Look at
1: exosomes, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we'll put that as like, all right, so hydration, no diet, which is really digestion. We'll give it like a half of a thumb up, whatever sleep. If you're doing it with your contacts, which I surf sans contacts, which is not always like if it is a day where there's a little bit more of a swell. and I'm a very intermediate surfer, but I will wish that I had my contacts in sometimes, but I typically leave them out. I surf without my contact lenses. So we can say that it helps your sleep by the fact that you're getting melanopsin. Cool, or Mm -hmm. you're getting your eyes to help you with some melanopsin. Stress, I think is a really, um, important thing for, for me. I mean, just getting out there and doing anything and we can kind of talk about that with connection in a minute, but the the stress component, it's a weird thing, but if you've ever surfed for a whole day and you've, I'm sure had this, there's nothing easier than when you close your eyes at night, being able to see those waves coming back in and that visualization that easily occurs. I think so many people have trouble with visualization meditations because they make it too hard. It's really just your imagination. If you can picture your favorite place, you can do a visualization meditation. And the easiest thing to be able to picture is something you've seen hundreds of times come at you any day. So I'm going to say that that's going to help out in that kind of like sleep and stress world. Then as far as the breathing, I do think that Even if we're just looking at it a little bit from the, you were talking about CO2 blow off and alkalinity of the body, usually it's cold immersion, which does have some, uh, a lot of people talk about cold immersion. Maybe it's just because of Wim Hof and everything like that, but breathing and cold immersion as uh, having, Aligning you towards a similar goal. Yeah, so we'll just I got put a it freezer that way. in
1: my garage full of forty-five degree water I sit in.
0: Yeah. <laughs> nice. I I I drive down and get in the water. And yeah, then, yeah. You're right. You definitely that's definitely a better approach. So and then as far as connection, I think so. Our connection is community, nature, and self. That that you actually hit all three of those in a really interesting way. Like oh, there yeah. is a community when it comes to the surfing. I'm sure you have your community when it comes to kiteboard. Oh, totally, yeah, yeah. Um, you're obviously connecting to nature. That one's a layup. But to self is an interesting thing. The way that we try and get people to connect themselves is we're assuming that they already have, because we've talked them through stress, are just trying to become a little bit more mindful and present. But an easy way to get latched into that is just to do something you truly enjoy. Like Your, your mind can actually forget what it feels like to do something that you enjoy. And by doing something that I enjoy, which is surfing, I think a lot of people do enjoy it when they try it, you're refreshing that mind on that enjoyment. So I think that maybe the hydration, okay, but diet, sleep, stress, it's definitely exercise ergonomics I would say it actually hits if we're talking about that pattern because it's a totally different pattern like when we're trying to talk about ergonomics that's just static but patterns and positions are things that we're always trying to get people to get out of and break new ones and then breathing and connection I think you hit it so for me it's like the biggest bang for the buck so I thank you for asking that question I was really hoping that someone would
1: yeah let I just and- have to attach a kite to it
0: yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I'll get there. I get offered that a lot. I will get there. I'm like, once I do this and get tired of it, I'll throw a kite on. I'll call you up. We'll go to Costa Rica. It'll be fantastic. Yeah. So I'm actually trying
1: to use a kite to learn how to surf the other way. So I'm doing it backwards.
0: <laughs> yeah. Hey, no, there's no bad way to get to a good place. So that's awesome. Now, does anyone have any questions right now? Um, you, we talked specifically about kiteboarding, Jeff, I see you in the building. Anyone <laughs> has any questions right now? If not, I'm gonna take us through our foundations of health a little bit and have a conversation, but I, I prefer to answer people's questions if we can.
1: I saw a little red dot come on. I don't know what that means. Someone said yes.
0: Yes, Jeff, I agree. I'm glad we got to talk about kite surfing. I I will I will get out there with you one of these days. Does anyone there 100%. Why don't you take this one Mike and then I'm going to throw on. I don't know if you can see that but the question yeah, is a meditation. I don't know if people will be able to see this on a replay is can you talk a little bit more about the importance of meditation? T- talk to me Mike.
1: Yeah, I mean it's there's all sorts of benefits, right? You can go down and look at the research from you know, just neuroplasticity to all sorts of beneficial neurologic uh, changes. I always like people to have strategies of dealing with stress that involve movement and then paradoxically, no movement, right? I get really nervous about someone who is like, yeah, I'm really high stress. My only way to to deal with my stress is just to go smash weights. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I like training. I think that's awesome. Um, I'm like, but I get nervous because... If something were to happen, like what if they get injured? Are they still going to go to the gym? What if they can't train as hard? Or what if they're not feeling good? Like, what if they're like super driven all the time? Can they handle stress by not moving, right? Because I think if we go back to metabolic flexibility, physiologic flexibility, whatever, I think movement is a really good way to handle stress, right? Especially after, you know, traumatic events, things of that nature definitely has its place. However, day to day can, you also mitigate some stress by paradoxically not moving, right? You can do some type of, uh, breathing. You could do all sorts of things. So I played around with breathing and meditation since like 1996. Like the first book I got was from, uh, Dr. Andrew Weil, I did some of his breathing stuff there and it was good. It was helpful. But in all honesty, like I just kind of fluctuated in and out, in and out till, It was about four years ago, I was in uh, Barbell Business Mastermind. Uh, We were down in Baja, so Mike Bledsoe was there and had us do some Wim Hof breathing on the beach in Baja in the morning. And I'm like, man, if I can't like figure out this meditation thing here, I'm probably screwed. I'm never gonna figure it out. So I got up each morning, even the two of the mornings, I was hungover. um, And he kind of took us through some kind of supra ventilation, hyperventilation type stuff. And at the end, we just did very, very slow breathing. Like, pretend like someone's watching you and they can't watch, they can't see you breathe anymore. And it was the first time I actually felt different. I was like, oh my God, this is kind of quiet. All right. So, people are not familiar. Like, if you do a Wim Hof type breathing, you're going to do a very rapid inhale and exhale over like 30 to 40 breaths. And then you'll do, yeah, some type of hold. You can hold on a full breath or not a full breath. Uh, But what I realized after just the second round, (laughs) was you're just sitting there, like not even breathing. And it's like, holy shit, this is like really quiet. Oh my God, this is what quiet feels like. Whoa, that's so crazy, right? So, and I've gone on and done, there's all just different styles. I've been with uh, Dr. Ben House in Costa Rica. His dad is uh, a Zen priest. So do a lot of uh, more, what I call the Zen style of just go out and stare at a tree, (laughs) you know, just sit there, eyes open, stare at something in front of you. Okay. Yep. Those are instructions. Go ahead. <laughs> Spend the next rest of your life doing that. Um, So yeah. So I definitely think it's beneficial. I would recommend people start with the Wim Hof and then just realize what that quiet period feels like. And then I would transition to other methods and see if you can replicate that part. So. Well,
0: Mike, was that, did, were you ever a mouth breather at, at your oh, life? Yeah, 100%. Was that Horrible take mouth. up? kind of like it sounds like you were a little bit more of that buteko method so you found benefit and and i think you're more in the norm i think we almost like use wim hof to just get people to realize that they can possibly feel different from the way that they breathe and then it's nice to be like but that's only in certain situations and for you you, 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 it sounds like you were one of those people and we see that a lot, especially in New York City where people are sympathetic AF all the time. Um, to to answer, and it, it sounds like you and I have similar philosophies with this, you need active and you need passive ways to get, to get down. And, and someone who's already doing a lot of this, you kind of got to teach them to flip it. And again, that's more like, a little bit. That's from a, a guy who I know is listen right. Peter DeQuino does a really good job. Hmm. Uh, he's a fantastic acupuncturist of explaining all this, and and I'll do my best to kind of like give the same examples uh, to talk about meditation. I think to boil it down in its simplest simplest form, meditation is the ability to focus. It can be focus on your breath, which a lot of people use. It can be focus on a candle that's in front of you, it can be a focus on a tree that's in front of you. Whatever mm-hmm. it is, it's it's working that steering system to bring you back to the present that is an important mental muscle to work out. Now, the best way to actually apply that is that mindfulness. So think of meditation as doing the exercise is you doing the stairmaster in the gym, but then mindfulness is actually walking up the stairs in a building. It's taking that exercise and applying it to your day-to-day life. It's taking that focus that you've been working so hard on and applying it to your day-to-day life. And that focus generally should be within your five senses. It's trying to be in the present. And I think that's a really important differentiation that it's not just breathing for the sake of breathing, it's breathing with a focus on that breath in order to help that steering system In your mind, work just a little bit better so that when you're out in the rest of the world, it comes in a little bit more naturally. The other thing that I think is really important is just learning with a meditation practice. And this is why we're so big on uh, Headspace. So if you go to our Mm -hmm. website, you'll see a discount link for Headspace, is just learning about the nature of the mind. And, And maybe that's been something, Mike, that you've had experience with, maybe not as much, but I do think that a true A true all encompassing practice of what would be typically termed as meditation is meditation, mindfulness, which is, again, applying that focus to your everyday life to keep you in the present moment as well as you can. And then having an education on the nature of the mind is, I think, just as important. Because I think that you can get a lot of these tools, but if you don't know how to use them, I think it can still be pretty challenging and, and almost off-putting when it doesn't need to be.
1: Yeah. And I would add something I'm sure you would agree is with biomechanics. Most people biomechanically can't take a deep breath. Like their CO2 retention's not very good. You know, yeah. like I literally like the first session of hands-on work I do on people like maybe an hour, hour and a half is is just rib stuff. So as glute max, like all of it, lat, uh, just everything I can to get them to mechanically breathe better. And what's crazy is that if we believe that your brain is always doing what is most efficient, right? So I I did the Buteyko stuff years ago. And what I found was, I had to lay down, do the drills, like so inhale through your nose, per slip exhale for six to 10 seconds. There's different versions of it. I had to do like 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes at night to even try to get some change in my breathing. And so 30 Mm -hmm. minutes of breath work was just compliance. Yeah, all clients like didn't really do it. Um, However, with RPR and some deactivated stuff and there's other drills I'm sure you can do also. If I can get someone, to make better breathing more efficient, I've actually not even used a lot of cues recently, and people will automatically, unconsciously shift to better breathing, and that will stick. And you've seen, like, I did one, two, three, four, five, seven sessions on people in Costa Rica when I was there, and you know, some of the people had some trauma, had some other stuff going on, and you know, one girl was just sitting there after we got done, and she's just looking around, and she's just like. Oh my God, all the colors are brighter. Like I can see, right? Cause if you think about it, if you're constantly sympathetic, like toned up, like your world literally looks different, right? Because your body is getting trained to look at an immediate threat in front of you. Um, so once you become better breathing, right? You automatically get a lot more parasympathetic without even doing any meditation, right? And now if you can stack, you know, meditation or mindful breathing stuff on top of that, you know, you can extract a lot greater benefit from it, too.
0: Right. And if you don't want, you know, from everything we're saying, it, it's really nice to even just be able to think about the vagus nerve itself. The vagus nerve yeah. is a nerve that travels all through your body, wandering nerve, and it goes through the diaphragm. That nerve is more symp- parasympathetically fiber oriented. So it picture of it almost as an extension of your brain that is calming that you can actually touch, if you will. And so by doing good diaphragmatic breathing, you're actually gently stroking that vagus nerve, which is more, as we said, parasympathetically oriented. It's almost like this nice little mechanical hack into helping you calm down. Then you feel a little bit better, and then you diaphragmatically breathe a little bit better. And just the same way that you kind of like spun yourself up, into this sympathetic entity that has trouble breaking it down, you can start to unravel that.
1: Yeah, and to me, the next level then is put yourself in a stressful situation and see if you can breathe through it. So I'll do some heavier work on the rower and I'll only breathe through my nose, right? So how long can I keep nasal inhaling at higher and higher and higher levels of heart rate, right? I'll throw myself in 45 degree water in a freezer. I've got water in And then how fast can I switch to nasal breathing and breathe calmly, even Mm -hmm. though man, every day is like day 14 right now sucks. This is not fun. (laughs) Right. But you feel better once you're done. And I think you're training that resilience. Like, again, how much stress can you absorb and not lose your shit? Right.
0: Let's see. Are there any meditation apps apps you recommend? Yeah, Jeff, Jeff, go on and get Headspace and use our discount code for sure. Um, I think it gets those three together real nice. Mike, do you have any meditation apps that you recommend? Because I... I
1: I don't use many, to be honest. The only one I will use sometimes is a Brainwaves app, which is Biorel Beats. Research on it's kind of mixed, but um, I'll use that with a pair of uh, just cheap headphones that kind of seal in your ear. So if I'm somewhere else and like the noise is kind of bothering me and I want a timer without having to set a watch or a phone, um, I'll run that sometimes. Got it.
0: Cool. Next question is, Teresa would like to know, Mike, what do you recommend we change during this lockdown?
1: Mm, change, maybe she can come comment back. Change in. I guess kind of what is the goal
0: possibly? I- I guess would be what, if, if in your routine, with all of your knowledge,
1: ah, got it.
0: What would you say, like, you should be uh, fasting so that you can go into autophagy so that you're better protected, or yeah, the yeah. opposite, increase your carbs, don't, whatever it
1: is. Yeah, I would say just set up whatever your morning routine is. Most people just kind of fly by the seat of their pants. So I would say some type of movement, some type of hydration, some type of breathing, ideally some type of exercise, light exposure. I'm a big fan of like front-loading all of those into the morning, especially now. Most people are at home. Most people have a lot more control of their schedule than they've ever had before. So I think it's a good time to front-load a lot of those habits. And again, I don't have kids. I live here at home and converted my garage into a gym. So I get kind of uber neurotic about it, but... I don't think you need to get that crazy. Um, Just intentionally write down one thing you want to get done in the morning and go from there and then add another thing and then add another thing. Um, That's that's kind of where I would start, because now is the ability you can do that. Right. Normally, it's really, really hard to make those changes.
0: Yeah, I think I think right now, I always think that that morning routine is really important. I'm going to take you through mine because I think that it's uh, it's the best that it's been, if you will. Um, If you do have a partner, I know this sounds like an interesting thing to mention, but I think that that snuggling and that that contact is really important um, in various positions. Again, I'm probably going to get made fun of the most for this, but I do think (laughs) that it's it's like one holding the other, then the other person holding the other person, and preferably a a face-to-face as well for about 10 minutes each is a really set, set you off in the right direction, then getting up. I start, I think everyone kind of uses the bathroom when they go, but I make sure that the first thing that my eyes see is a book when I'm reading. Um, I think that it just sets your mind into a good focus oriented start. I think the things, just like you said, like the things that you do in the beginning of the day kind of set you neurologically on that path for what, no guarantees, but for what what your brain is expecting the rest of that day to look like. After that, I think that just grabbing some water which is really nice. Just regular water is a good thing. Doing a movement practice, then followed by a meditation with the tea that I've been using right now, which is from our last webinar, is uh, warm water, ginger, elderberry, astragalus, mullen root, I believe is what mm. it's called. And then I hit my omega-3 and my B12. That That's the uh, kind of like my morning. And, and all that will happen before i even check my phone. Yeah. Um I know that that's pretty like i can't people can't imagine that but I, I i run my own business if i wanted to i could be on 24/7 and i've intentionally chosen to step away. So it's the morning, snuggles, bathroom, while reading, movement practice, meditation with some hydration and a and a good tea. And all of that i think is a reasonable thing to do before you Open up your phone and see what happened on even your text messages. Like keep all that at bay so that your brain really thinks, like, hey, this this is what this day could look like.
1: I agree. What do you perfect?
0: All right. The other thing. So we're just gonna take the last 10 minutes just to wrap. Like, I'm gonna take you through our eight foundations of health. And I just want you to kind of like give me your quick hit, what comes to mind right away when I say those things, like the things that you think people don't know about these specific topics, okay? So the first one is hydration. Talk to me about hydration.
1: Yeah, just drink more fluids, drink more water. I mean, I've been playing around with a little bit of electrolytes, a little bit more sodium, especially if I'm traveling or... Uh, doing a longer fast, I have found that having a little bit more sodium seems to help. I use some uh, stuff from the guys at Element, L-M-N-T. Um, but yeah, just drink more pure water. And one of the simple things that people do normally, uh, most grocery stores will have a reverse osmosis center. So you can just refill containers there for 20 to 35 cents a container and you're not adding tons of stuff to the landfill and it's pretty inexpensive. If you want to you know, add a few minerals back, you can you can do that. But You know, that's pretty, pretty clean water. Start there. Cool. Diet. I think most people do better with more protein, have some vegetables, have some fat, and then just titrate or move your carbohydrates up to your activity level and metabolism. Um, You know, I got some guys that are trying to qualify for the CrossFit Games if they ever come around again or eat 540 grams of carbs a day. And I've got other people that are at eh, like 100. Um, Unless you're doing purposely ketogenic diet, I don't really have people go much below 100. Um, But just kind of titrate to those to where you need. And do the best you can. You don't need to be neurotic. And if you want a few cookies here and there and dark beer, eh, it's probably not going to be that big of a deal as long as it's more of the minority, not the majority.
0: Sleep. I know we already talked about it. Just give us a quick word on it.
1: Yeah, sleep as much as you can. Everyone I've, I've realized has a different uh, amount of sleep. Um, I've tried everything known to man to get less sleep and still have the same performance and everything. And I haven't found anything, you know, to be honest, I, I have a ruler. So I do cooler sleep at night and have all the good sleep hygiene. I've got a red light, all the crazy biohacker shit. Um, and I still find like my time in bed on average is nine hours and 25 minutes. I just feel better with that much sleep. And if I train super hard, it'll go up to 10, 10 and a half hours. Um, so yeah, I just need more sleep. So that's okay. I, I know that now and I just get more sleep and I feel better.
0: <laughs> you are my idol, stress.
1: I have some strategies of dealing with stress. Uh, have a movement and a non-movement uh, strategy. And then also just change your framework about stress Right. So a lot of stress is not necessarily bad. There are stressors, there are things that happen to us and then we can control our response. Right. So most people, if they do better nutrition, sleep, aerobic training over time, I want to look at I may need to buffer or reduce some things that are stressors. And then how do I increase my resilience to handle more stressors? For me personally, most of my clients, I actually want them to handle more stress overall. I think that's just going to make you a more resilient human being but realize that that's that's a that's a year to multi-year process also
0: exercise
1: yeah just go move right i classify exercise or recreation i'll actually split the two right so a lot of people i see are really good with exercise and horrible with recreation it's like dude just go learn to surf go learn to kiteboard, just play tennis Like, I don't want to hear any of your stats, what your Strava or whatever said. Just go whack a ball against a wall. Do something, right? And other people, if they're only doing recreation, I think they probably do a little better with formal exercise. Like, actually track what you lift and what you're doing for performance and things of that nature. So, exercise, definitely important. Probably going to have some metrics. Probably going to track a few things. Recreation is still super important for other movement patterns. uh, But you're not really tracking anything. Just go have fun.
0: Cool. Ergonomics or patterns, patterning.
1: Yeah. I like people being able to tolerate weird positions, but that's uh, a stress versus distress, Mm -hmm. right? So I get nervous if someone is like, oh man, my back really hurts. Like if I have to sit on a plane for a half hour, those seats are horrible. It's like, yeah, plane seats suck. I agree. But can you handle other insults and still be okay? That doesn't mean you need to have shitty posture every day and have your nose touch your keyboard, right? So again, making sure you can handle those different movement patterns, but overall you're still moving in the right direction.
0: And we already talked about it, anything else you wanna add on breathing?
1: I think breathing, I first said people, so two things. So practice better breathing, some meditation, there's different styles, just pick one you like and then also look at your mechanics of breathing. Uh, if you can get with someone like yourself or someone who does really good hands on work to help with that, I think that'll be a big game changer because then when you're doing the drills, they have a lot greater um, effect. And while doing the drills help you over time, I think they will. But if you can kind of merge those two together, so in a perfect world, like when I have clients here, I'll do all the drills for them, I'll get them to a pretty good point will practice uh, some of the actual drills themselves, both before and after. And then once they feel a difference with a lot better biomechanics, all the other drills they're doing are just that much more productive then.
0: Perfect, and then the last one is connection. Tell us how you connect to your community, yourself, or uh, with nature, just we'll finish off with that.
1: Yeah, so a lot of stuff lately has been online, but I do like to travel a lot. Um, so I like to hang out with people, do fun stuff, do different things, visit different places, conferences, that kind of stuff. I'm definitely more on the introvert side, but I do like doing those things, it's definitely fun. Obviously, I present to a lot of different places too. Uh, you know, try to walk outside, you know, as much as you can, get in nature. Um, for me, kiteboarding works really well because so I get to hang out with a bunch of people, hang out usually at the water, at the beach, and have fun, do some recreation. Try to do some jumps not kill myself
0: <laughs> perfect then the final question that we got where is your favorite kiteboarding spot uh is one of our viewers is a 12 m kite?
1: oh cabrina told me yeah, yeah. yeah. the twin tip board dakala yeah i haven't been to Duckla. i've heard it's supposed to be really nice but i haven't been there yet um oh man there's a lot of really good places uh, I was just in Australia, and I brought all my gear and shit down there for three weeks and never rode once. The weather was just not cooperating. Uh, but I would say a place I probably want to go back to, we usually go to Hood River. Uh, we go to South Padre a lot. Uh, Hatteras is good. Another place that people probably haven't heard of is El Cuyo, Mexico. So go to Cancun, go two and a half hours northwest, where my buddy Ryan runs a place called Come Kite With Us. And it's a very small fishing town. I think there's like 200 people there. We were there three years ago, two years ago. Um, Probably two miles of just open beach. And the busiest time was 20 people on the water. So really not that much at all. Uh, Favorite setup right now, I just got a a new to me. I ride usually uh, blade kites. So I have a Trigger 12 meter. It's my favorite so far. Uh, Eight meters pretty fun if the wind's uh, super cranking. And then, uh, big fan of uh, Lightwave boards. Uh, my buddy Dave runs a company, so I've got a wing for Lightwave, and then I've got a carbon kick for my my twin tip. And yeah, so that's kind of my current current setup right now. And it's a uh, it's been super fun. My uh, my goal this year is to jump over 20 feet up. I've got a little device that actually measures. So I hit 20 feet last year. I hit a max speed of 30 miles an hour, and then I wiped out, which is really bad. <laughs> Um, so working on getting more 15 to 20 foot jumps and actually landing them and just being a lot more, uh, consistent on that too. So yeah, good times.
0: So before, before you exit this earth doing one of those things, how can people find you right now?
1: Yeah, right now, best place is probably the main website, which is just Mike If you go there, you can go on the top. There's a little offer. I think we we're giving away some stuff on some cool interviews. And that'll put you on to the newsletter list. So newsletter list goes out pretty frequently. Most of the content I write, probably 80, 90% of it right now goes out to the newsletter. So that'd be the best place to sign up. And then if you're interested in the certification, that's just at uh, flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. And there'll be a way you can uh, get on the wait list there for the next time it opens up and got a bunch more information coming out through that too.
0: Perfect. Mike, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank
1: you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Oh,
0: this was great, man. And thank you for being a guest on Five Questions with Integrated Health Sciences, and we will catch you later.